0: Well good morning everybody. Welcome Calvary Quaker Town. It's great to have you join us this morning. We're in a series that we're calling Impact and we're looking at one of our two values and we put them both together into a saying, our little motto that goes like this. As we connect with God and are impacted by him, he then sends us to connect and impact others with the gospel. And 1 John is a book that helps us understand exactly what that means because in 1 John, the Apostle John is describing to us how his life has been impacted, and then he's writing a letter to impact a church and individuals in the church with the gospel that he has been impacted so dramatically by. Well, this morning as we continue in 1 John, we come to the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, and the big word over which we're everything we're going to look at this morning is the word Confidence we're going to look at confidence because we live in a world of doubt. Do you have any doubts? Let me just mention a few. Do you doubt the Eagles will ever win a Super Bowl again? How about beat the 0-7 Lions today? Do you doubt that Ben Simmons will ever get traded or take a jump shot? Either one? Do you doubt that the sermon will end on time and you'll make lunch? Do you doubt but it's not just in areas of life. We also doubt spiritually, don't we? Do you doubt that when you pray, God hears your prayers? Do you ever doubt that God really loves you and cares for you? Do you ever doubt that his promises of forgiveness are good for you and all of your sins, past, present, and future have been forgiven? Do you ever doubt in kind of moments where you're alone and honest, you ever doubt that you're on the right side of an issue? Our world fills us with doubts. Our hearts sometimes fill us with doubts. And so we need confidence. And John writes this first letter to give confidence and assurance to his readers. And we're gonna look at confidence and assurance under two heads today. So if you have your Bibles and you turn to 1 John chapter three, We're going to begin in 19 and I'll read through the end of the chapter. That's kind of the first section. And let's call that confidence over doubt. And let's see what John has to say about that. Beginning of verse 19 of 1 John chapter 3. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know by the spirit he gave us. Now, we'll read the next section in a minute. While you still have your Bible open or your phone or your iPad, whatever you're using, do you notice that the bookends around that paragraph are, this is how we know. So look at verse 19. This is how we know. And then down at halfway through 24, this is how we know. Obviously, John wants us to know. He doesn't want us to live in doubt. He doesn't want us to live in confusion. He wants us to have confidence and assurance. And he's writing this letter to give us confidence and assurance. And I know as I read that, it's, it's kind of weird, right? If your hearts don't condemn you, if your hearts do condemn you, well, you can have your prayers answered, or if your heart's God's greater than your heart, what's going on? Here's the point. Your heart is not the highest court. That's what John's saying. We live in a culture that continually tells us our hearts are the Supreme Court, Right? Just follow your heart. If it is right to you, it must be right. If it feels good, then it is good. But the Bible says, and John clearly says in this passage, there's a higher court than your heart. You have a bunch of uh, lights on the dashboard of your car. I know it's not politically correct, but they're idiot lights. That's what they're called, right? And those idiot lights come on to warn you that something isn't right. So, for example, your alternator's not charging the battery, the light comes on. Something, it breaks or whatever, overheating, you need to get gas, the light comes on. I really appreciate the idiot light that tells you you need gas, because that's the only time I stop to get gas, when the light comes on. My wife never, ever sees her, the gas light, come on, but when the light comes on, oh, you have to get gas, right? The lights come on and warn you something is going awry, there's danger ahead. But you ever notice, sometimes the lights aren't calibrated correctly. Did you ever have that experience? You ever had the engine light come on and there'd be nothing wrong at all with the car? I think the mechanics kind of do that to get you in there and charge you just to turn the light out. The engine lights, the lights on your dashboard, have to be calibrated correctly in order to function properly. That's what John's saying here. John's saying there's a higher court than your heart, God is the Supreme Court. And what we need to do to live in confidence is to make sure that our hearts are calibrated by God with the Scripture and the Spirit. When your heart is calibrated correctly, your heart then can exude confidence. And then he repeats a a couple of themes that he's been saying throughout the book. The one theme is, if your heart's calibrated correctly with what God wants and what the Spirit's doing inside of you, you will love others, right? We've talked about that a number of times. Carlos talked about that last week. How are you doing with loving others? Seriously. Not with like the overflow, you know, throwing a little tidbits here and there, but kind of actually sacrificing your time, energy, money, whatever, to meet the needs and desires of someone else. How are you doing with that? John says, If our hearts are calibrated correctly, then we will be loving others not to get something. We will be loving to give something, encourage, and build their lives up. Uh, You're going to hear me mention a couple of times in this message passages from Deuteronomy. I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to mention them to you. (laughs) I've been thinking this past week. John must have been reading or reflecting on the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy when he wrote this letter. Because in the two little sections we're gonna read today, three passages in Deuteronomy are at least alluded to. He doesn't quote them, but he kind of alludes to them. This whole idea of loving one another and having a hard heart, that's right out of the middle of Deuteronomy 15. And here's what uh, Moses writes in Deuteronomy. Don't be hard-hearted, and see others in need, and not love them. Instead, paraphrase, have your heart calibrated by the scripture and the loving spirit, so that your heart is in tune with God, calibrated by God, and you meet the needs of others as God has met your need. Right there, in the backdrop, Deuteronomy 15. God's not inventing new things in 1 John. He's reminding John and us through John, of the old things. Confidence. Confidence comes by having our hearts calibrated by God. And the last verse in the section it reads like this. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave to us. That's how the calibration works. The calibration doesn't work with the Bible apart from the spirit. And the calibration doesn't work with the spirit apart from the scripture. The two have to be married together. The commands coming from the scripture, right? As the spirit takes the scripture and in our lives calibrates our hearts so that now we're loving God, keeping his commandments and seeking to please him. And when you do that, you have access to God and you're confident in your access to God. Not because of anything you did, but because of what Jesus did and the Spirit's reminding you of and the Bible teaches you of. And you'll pray in line and with what God has taught because your desire is to please Him as the Spirit is calibrating your heart to His. Now, this section does not give you carte blanche to pray anything you want and expect that God's going to give it to you. Here's what it means. If your heart is calibrated by the Spirit in Scripture... Your prayers will be in alignment with God, and therefore your prayers will be answered. And if your hearts are calibrated by the Spirit and Scripture, you'll recognize that Jesus, your advocate, is your substitute and God himself. So access is guaranteed. You know, sometimes um, it's easy to look at ourselves. It's easy for me to look at me and um. Get nervous about access. Get nervous about answers to prayer. Um, Are you familiar with the Wizard of Oz? You know, the the three crazy characters, the little girl and her rat-like dog. Remember that story? Well, eventually they make it to Oz, right? You got, you know, the scarecrow with no brain and the tin man who doesn't have a heart and you got the lion who doesn't have courage and they're all making their way to the wizard because he'll be able to meet their needs and give them everything that they long for. Eventually they make it and they're walking down that hallway and just beyond the door, the wizard sits and they're going to come with their request and he's going to grant their request and they're going to get everything that they want. And eventually they're ushered into the room and there's smoke and lots of it looks like a giant pipe organ with smoke, and, and eventually the big voice booms and he calls the Tin Man, come on up here. You clinking, clanking piece of collection of junk. Who gives you the right to come and stand before me? Do you ever feel like that when you come before God? You clinking, clanking, collection of junk? In and of ourselves, that is the picture. But when our hearts are calibrated by the Scripture and the Spirit, we realize that we do have access, not because of who we are. We're clinking, clanking, collections of junk. But in Christ, we're forgiven. We're accepted, and access is guaranteed. And we stand boldly and confidently Before God, making requests and knowing we belong because of Jesus' sake. Confidence over doubt. It doesn't come by trying hard or it doesn't come by following your heart. It comes by allowing God to calibrate your heart. That's how it works. Well, the next section we're going to look at is confidence over error. Error. And uh, let's be honest. It's easy to tell error in some areas. So for example, it's easy to tell two plus two does not equal five. Maybe in some universe or some system, but two plus two does not equal five. It's easy enough to tell Abraham Lincoln actually did live and was president of the United States. But when it comes to spiritual issues and assessing this view and that view, all of a sudden... It becomes difficult to tell the difference between truth and error, doesn't it? Listen to what Paul says, chapter 4, the first few verses. Excuse me, John. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, for which you, which you have heard is coming and is even now already in the world. You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is not a new problem, being able to discern truth from error. In fact, it was all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Remember I said John must have been thinking about Deuteronomy? Two sections in Deuteronomy give clues as to how to tell the true teachers from the false teachers. In Deuteronomy 18, here uh, Moses gives us the easy one. Here's what he says. If a prophet says something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, he's a false prophet. Ignore him, avoid him, get rid of him. So if he predicts something, says something, tells this, and it doesn't happen, he's a false prophet. Well, that raises an interesting question Suppose he says something's going to happen and it does happen, right? You can't always be wrong, right? You know, the blind squirrel thing, right? So what if the false prophet's the blind squirrel and he gets one right? Does that mean you... No, no, no. You see, in another passage, Deuteronomy 13, we're told a whole different thing, and it's kind of strange. You want to check that out today. Beginning of Deuteronomy 13. Here's what Moses writes. If a prophet prophesies signs and wonders and declares things happening in the future... And he does signs and wonders, and what he foretells actually happens. Is he a true prophet? Well, we don't know yet. Deuteronomy 13 says, does what he teach align with what the Bible says? If the person who proclaims signs and wonders and they occur, if he predicts the future and it happens as he said, but he calls you to follow other gods, he calls you to do things that are contrary to the scripture, he's a false prophet, ignore him and get rid of him. Interesting. If what he says doesn't happen, false prophet, if what he says does happen, but his his teaching doesn't align with scripture, he's a false prophet. Wow. Wow there has to be alignment and there has to be accuracy. John is reminding his readers and he's reminding us there are lots of teachers out there, lots of voices out there saying lots of crazy things. How do we discern and how can we have confidence over error? That's what he says. And here's a big one right out of here. this one should be you know feel like we've done this already, right? The big one is Jesus, right? What are they teaching about Jesus? Now, here's how he says it in the beginning of chapter four. In chapter four, This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now actively in the world. Now, remember the word anti, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean some you know futuristic, weirded out beast. Here's what it means. The word anti means against, instead of, or in addition to. So any teaching that is against Jesus, right? The incarnation and substitution, any, any teaching against that is, is false teaching. Any teaching that is instead of, well, instead of, gee, yeah, that, that's a good deal, but this is what you really need. No, 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 out of bounds. Or any teaching that is in addition to. You see, it's not Jesus plus something. No, no, no. It's Jesus, period. It's not the scripture plus something. No, it's scripture plus nothing. That's what it is. Now, in the, at the risk of being politically incorrect, let me just mention uh, a few groups that are filled with lots and lots of nice people. But the things they teach do not line up, do not align with what the scripture says. So for example... Jehovah Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is God who became a human being. They believe Jesus is a created being by God. The Mormon Church, Church of Latter-day Saints, they do not believe that Jesus is God's only son. In fact, they believe that Jesus is created and Jesus is Lucifer's brother. That's what they teach. And they also teach that Jesus was married to both Mary and Martha and had children, okay? Um, Now, they don't publicize that, but that's there. Um, Muslims, right, lots of good people, do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, carved into, um, you know, the thing on the Dome of the Rock there, it says, God has no son, Jewish folks do not believe that Jesus is God who became a human being. So we live in a world where there's lots of teaching that, according to the scripture and according to the spirit, according to the gospel, those teachings are incorrect. We believe Jesus is God. Become a human being. That's the incarnation. We'll celebrate that in a few weeks at Christmas, right? And we believe that Jesus came on the mission of substitution to take our place to pay for our sin. And that's exactly what he accomplished. Now that may sound really politically incorrect and that may not fit, but that's the only message we got, friends. And that is the test of true teachers. We also have the test of... um, of life. And John's been hinting at it here a couple of times, and we'll probably take a little bit of time next week, looking at the Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit invades your life, right? When you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Christ, this Holy Spirit invades your life, and He gives you life. Now, it doesn't mean you were dead before that, but it means spiritually now you become alive, and you now have the resources to understand the Scripture, and now to calibrate your heart according to the gospel. He does all that Here's how he says it in, a, in chapter four. You dear children are from God and have overcome them. Now, that, that, that's an interesting phrase. Um, you all know the Greek word for overcome. Do you know that? Like you're like Greek students, right? You know what that word is? Nike, right? Overcome, victory. You wouldn't be an athletic company making shoes and jerseys and call it defeat, right? You, know, you wouldn't call it the giants, right? You... You call it victory, Nike. Um, so, But notice, notice what John writes. Dear children, you're from God and have victory over all of these forces because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in... That's life, right? And we calibrate our hearts and can have confidence over error when the spirit who is in our lives takes the scripture married together and begins to bring that to life and brings transformation in our lives. That's how it works. Did you notice at the end of chapter 19 and at the end of the section from chapter 6, the same theme comes up again. And that's the theme of abiding. Now, if you have the NIV, it doesn't say abiding. It says living. So the spirit lives in you and you in the spirit. It's the word abiding, right? You you abide in him. He abides in you. It's the language. And here again, you abide. The one who is in you is greater than one in the world. You're abiding. Um, That's kind of a weird concept, right? John likes that word, by the way, right? John chapter 15, as the branches abide in the vine so you can bear fruit. But that's hard for us to understand, right? So at the risk of doing something that may get me in trouble, Uh, some of you are happy, some of you aren't, Um, I'm I'm going to take the risk. I've said for years and years, uh, teaching preachers, and I've said to our teachers here at Calvary Church, to never do what I'm about to do. I always said, when you're preaching a passage, stay in the passage. There's enough there. You don't have to run around other verses. Don't preach five passages. Preach the passage you're in. Well, at the risk, uh, I'm going to look at another passage now. But I've got good reasons for it. I know, rationalization. Here are the reasons. You may have missed something when I read um, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. And here's what you may have missed. All of the, all of the times John writes, you... They're all plural, they're not singular. You know, one of the weird things about English is the word you is both singular and plural. Unless you're from the South, then it's y'all, right? But, but the good thing, at least you know if it's plural or singular, when or if you're from Philly and you refer to yous, right? Well, at least in Philly, you know if he's talking about one you or three yous, right? I'm not sure if they're sheep or not, but right down South, they have y'all in Philly. We have yous, right? But in normal contemporary English, we just have you. And you're not quite sure if it's singular or plural. All of the times John says you in verses one through six of chapter four, they're all plural, but you would have missed it. What's the point? Here's the point. John is not saying, get alone with your Bible. And study and discover the truth all by yourself. No, he's saying you as a community have to get together and dialogue this thing out. We're going to determine and have confidence over error together. We need your experience. We need your background. We need your understanding. And together in groups, go on the men's retreat. We're right? to get in groups and talk about it, right? In community, we do this. You miss that. So the whole abiding thing, yeah, there is a singular aspect to abiding. You become a Christian, you kind of abide with God. But there's a community part of abiding too. And the other reason I'm going to do this is because uh, the abiding metaphor is really weird, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit like invisible. How in the world do you abide with invisible? Thankfully, God has other metaphors. And I read one, uh, I guess about a week and a half ago and it kind of called me up short. If you have your Bibles, and turn to a real familiar passage, turn to Psalm 23, and I'll tell you why we're going to read it. I'm like (laughs) you. Sorry. um, But I often live in a world which is like a hurricane of doubt, circumstances and change and transition. And it seems like things are flying by and there's a million things for me to worry about and be concerned about. And in the midst of all that, every, nothing is constant, right? You can't predict it. And, and that's my situation usually. And um, I'm reading through Psalms these days as I try to do a couple times each year. And uh, this morning, or not this morning, but this morning, a couple of weeks ago, I'm uh, sitting there reading, and I finished Psalm 22 and come to Psalm 23. And here was my thought, I, I confess. Here's my thought. Oh, I know this Psalm. I read this Psalm maybe hundreds of times. I've read this, I memorized this Psalm, right? I can't repeat it right now, but I memorized. It. I know what Psalm, I preach on Psalm 23 probably 10 times. I know Psalm 23. And just as I'm saying, I know Psalm 23, my eyes look down at the page and I see verse four. Now, let let me explain to you something uh, you know where you need to be reminded. Hebrew poetry is not about rhyming, right? That's kind of an invention of Shakespeare in English, right, where things rhyme. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. Hebrew poetry is all about structure, it's all about, you know, line A and line B, and often a really important part of a Hebrew poem is the very central line. There's even a structure for that. That structure is called a chiasm, right? Because it's named after the Greek letter key. If you're from a frat, a chi, it's actually a key, a big X, right? And so when Hebrews, when Jews were writing poetry in the Bible, it's all about structure, not rhyming, it's structure, line A, line B. And the most important thing often goes right in the middle. Why do I say that? The absolute middle of the 23rd Psalm, the middle middle is, you are with me. You are with me kind of interesting, isn't it? The picture is of a shepherd. The shepherd's leading his flock. God the shepherd isn't responding to stuff that happens. The shepherd is leading the sheep into the stuff that happens. And as you read Psalm 23, there's even a seasonality to it, right? There's spring and the pastures are green, and then things are dry. You lead them to another pasture. You lead them when they're third. There's movement, and there's even movement to the valley of the shadow of death, and the shepherd's leading. The shepherd's not caught by surprise. How in the world did we get here? No, the shepherd's leading them there. The shepherd's leading. Oh, yeah, and the shepherd's with them. And lastly, the shepherd knows the way home he leads them home. Now I know there are some commentators that say the shepherd's son and sheep thing goes all the way through the end. I don't think so. I think the metaphor changes at the end. The shepherd leads the flock to the king's house and he welcomes his guests home. That's kind of abiding friends. It's plural, just like a flock. If flock isn't one sheep, a whole bunch, right? What's the purpose of abiding? It's being with, the shepherd is with, he's leading, he never leaves, and the shepherd knows where he's going. You see, Psalm 23 is a psalm of abiding. It's the promise that God is with us. We need to cooperate as he leads into places that you may not choose to go. But you trust he knows the way home, and he'll get us there. So let me read Psalm 23, and I'll pray. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Dwelling is abiding. Abiding is knowing that the king who is a shepherd, is a savior and a substitute, is with us. Let's take that with us today. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we often read things in the Bible that are hard for us to understand. Expressions are foreign to us. Ideas are a little strange. Categories don't seem to make sense. And yet, Lord, every once in a while, a picture kind of strikes home. And you remind us that in the picture, you see who I am. You see who you are. And you see how this whole journey ends And what it's going to take to get there. Thanks, Father, for wanting to abide with us by sending Christ to make that possible. And your spirit to make that a reality. Lord, help us to realize you're leading this journey. It's not happening by accident. You go with us. And you're leading us home. We pray in the shepherd's name. Amen.